0: You are listening to Talking Up, an interview show dedicated to authors, journalists, and writers working on issues of social justice, equity, and the systems that make up the nonprofit sector. Guests are talking about their writing and their research and what drives their work. Listeners will have the opportunity to widen their lens and figure out where we might go from here. Welcome to Talking Up with host Gail Pico, editor in chief of the Charity Report.
1: For the past two years, award winning journalist Marcus G. has been writing about what some call the other pandemic deaths from opioid overdose. He's talked to and written about medical practitioners, opioid users, and the family and friends they sometimes leave behind. We talked to him today about how he goes about covering the story and why he started to report on it in the first place. Talking Up is so pleased to welcome Marcus G. Uh, welcome to Talking Up, Marcus.
2: Thanks. My pleasure to be here.
1: You've had a, an interesting career as a journalist, I think. Um, you covered foreign affairs for many years, and then you went into covering the financial sector and did work on the editorial page, and you know, now you're doing work as a columnist, which is great, but what um, I think has been re- really singular in your reporting lately is is on the opioid crisis. And um, what drew you to that story and what keeps you on it?
2: Yeah, well, the, um, the story that er- originally drew me to it um, wasn't about opioids. Um, I went to Aurelia, Ontario which was closing its uh, newspaper, there, their their local newspaper, Mm -hmm. with a history going back more than a century. So I was doing the story of how this closure was affecting this little town. And the idea behind the story was to kind of go to events that the local paper would have covered. And so one of them happened to be a vigil um, for... um, uh, people who had lost uh, loved ones to the opioids crisis. And so there, there was a local community center and there were four or five mothers of people, young people who had died from opioids and um, and there was a smudging ceremony with an indigenous leader there and so it was all very moving and I talked to a couple of the, uh, the moms and it struck me that. Uh, this was, I guess, in the fall, late fall. And, you know, I sort of thought, oh, these are people who have lost, um, you know, loved ones over the last several years. In fact, these were fresh deaths. Uh, one of the moms had lost her son you know, weeks ago and wow. another two or three months ago. And, and th- this was in a pretty small town. Mm-hmm. You know, north of Toronto. So, it just struck me like a ton of bricks that this was happening, you know, now in kind of real time, and um, and I just got kind of uh, obsessively um, interested in it. I, I did a story. My next story was about one of the mums whose son had written a memoir of his life on the streets and in drug addiction because he had he had gotten. Uh, Partly at least over his addiction and Uh sort of turned his life around. And he wrote a little memoir privately. She the mother privately published it. It was very moving about Mm -hmm. something. And he it was a terrible story because he had moved home to Aurelia, got his own place in a in a in a in a trailer, kind of a trailer area. And, you know, was actually had put in a little garden and Mm -hmm. met was meeting his mom for lunch. And this is after a guy who had spent years on the street. And she used to pass him on the highway begging. Oh. You know, he used to come to her house and kind of uh, and demand money. And his life had been a complete disaster. He was in jail and so on, sleeping in church doorways and all this sort of thing. Anyway, uh, he seemed to be back on the street and narrow more or less. And um, one morning he used uh, at home and died. I did that story, and then I just kind of got my my, my teeth into it. There's a lot of ground to uh, to cover here, so I've been been at it ever since.
1: Yes. and um, you and others have called the uh, the opioid crisis the you know, the other pandemic, quote unquote. And as you laid out in one of your columns, the numbers are are pretty stark. People are more isolated now. in other words, um
2: they can't go to the usual drop-in clinic, which may have been closed during the pandemic or had had limits, various protocols because of COVID, and <clears throat> they're, not, um, they're not doing other things with, with groups, and so they're using alone, which is right. the big danger thing, because if somebody is there with you and sees you collapsing from an overdose, they can take action, call 911 or use naloxone to revive you. Um, drug supply has changed. This was a um, North American uh, uh, business, uh, drugs flowing up, I guess, from the United States, mm-hmm. Mexico, go uh, from overseas and so on. These supply chains, if we can call them that, have been disrupted. So local dealers instead are kind of improv- improvising.
1: Right. The,
2: And, uh, you know, often these are kind of home labs uh, for for creating um, uh, drugs. And uh, and so that has introduced dangerous mixes of drugs into the supply.
1: And um, I guess following from your experience in Orillia, you've really decided to concentrate on smaller on looking at what's going on in smaller communities across Ontario. You've done a lot of work in Oshawa and Barrie, Guelph and Brantford, where, as you reported, four men died in one day there. Um, why did you make that? I, I can see why you would would want to make that choice. But how also did you get connected in those communities to talk to the people that that um, you needed to talk to?
2: Yeah. I guess I was drawn, I was drawn first to Oshawa because I'd done some other stories there and I knew they had a crisis and the hospital there was changing its practices. They tr- had to have this new system where they're trying to um, get them into treatment right away, set them up with supports and so on. I went to Oshawa and then as you say, uh, Brantford, Ontario, and it, it did kind of strike me that a lot of these mid-sized Ontario cities are hit really, really hard. A lot of them have kind of half abandoned or run down downtowns, which are right. kind of because of flight from the downtowns in the 60s and 70s, um, have a large you know, population of homeless people and so on. And uh, I was just struck by how these small, you know, usually quiet, quite peaceful and otherwise prosperous communities actually have this you know, huge problem. How I got in touch with people, it tends to be super easy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I was sort of awkward about, you know, how do you somebody and ask them, uh, you know, are you using drugs right now? And, you know, how many friends have you lost? Just to illustrate, I went to Brand and I talked to the mayor, I talked to the police chief and so on, all the usual suspects about their crisis there. And then I was there with a photographer for the Globe, and we were sort of scratching our heads. So where do we go to talk to you know real people? Right. So we thought, well, before we do that, let's go get lunch because <laughs> we've been working all morning.
1: Right.
2: Tim Hortons in downtown. We hang out for people, kind of street people, people who are homeless, using drugs. They go there and they hang around. They have they have a coffee. They spend mm-hmm. a lot of They listen to, they chit chat and so on. So I ended up that day, the photographer went home and I just stayed and talked to, you know, just approached people at their tables and um, said, you know, what's your story? And they were, and this is true of of all the stuff I've done is that they were by and large, perfectly happy to, to talk. And these are kind of overlooked forgotten people, right? Uh, you ask them their story and you ask them what's going on, and they have hair-raising stories about, you know, in that Brantford Tim Hortons, everybody I talked to, everybody um, had lost, you know, several people, some, you know, far more than that. And so, uh, you know, and these are pals who they've hung out for with for years and they're just dropping left and right. Mm. So um, they were quite. Uh, okay with uh, talking to me yeah i think often even for the um you know bereaved parents and so on um it's a bit cathartic yeah about it um they want to tell you uh what wonderful you know people their sons or daughters were and, and how what their struggles were and how angry and frustrated they are often that <clears throat> there was no help there for their you know for their sons and daughters and you know, often they're quite angry. Um, you know, you're, you're struck again and again how grief lasts. You know, these are people often who who have lost people, some of them years ago, some of them recently, of course, too. But right. some of the years ago, and it just hangs on. It's with them every single day. And a lot of them, one of the sad parts of this is a lot of them beat themselves up. So why wasn't I there uh, when they died? You know, uh, why didn't I? You know, why didn't I do more to help with treatment? You know, why did I use tough love that time and kick my son out of the house for, for using? Right. All, and you want to say to each of them, you know, of course, it's not your fault. Um, but imagine the struggle, right, of yeah, of having somebody, you know, basically steal from you, lie to you all the time about where they are, which is, which is very typical. And often these are, you know, Kids who grew up, you know, often happy kids, childhoods, were charming, talented in many ways, often very funny people.
1: Mm -hmm. And, And when they overdose, a tiny fraction, I mean, I'm reading, I'm quoting you back now, your own work, this is not news to you, ever see a uniformed first responder. So instead, what we've got is this, collection of unlikely you know, first responders—the guy riding his bike around with the naloxone kit, you know, hanging from the handlebars—and and the the two doctors up in Timmins who are working seventy-hour weeks and are pulling together this PowerPoint presentation to tell the mayor how bad it actually is in in the city. Two dealers, including a naloxone kit, with their the drugs that they are supplying. It an yeah. entire, it is an entirely, to me, it seems like a Wild West response to something that's a, fa- a pretty serious health problem. So um, I understand that there's there, there, there are medical professionals trying to cope with this, but where's the health system response? It's not as if governments are ignoring this Far, mm-hmm. I mean, there's been a
2: great deal of money is now being thrown at it. Um, And, you know, some of it is work. Some of it, I think, is making a difference. Um, Safe injection sites, which were controversial only, you know, five or six or seven years ago, are now popping up all over the place. Um, Not just in B.C. where they started, but Ontario and elsewhere. We're having this whole discussion about safe supply, whether, um, you know, even on a small scale now, some... People who use drugs are being uh, given basically prescription um, safe opioids. Um, There's a old discussion about decriminalization and so on. So the conversation, at least, has moved quite a bit in the last few years. Um, There's still huge gaps, so like treatment. Um, A lot of people, I'm working on something now, but a lot of people die waiting for treatment because. It's quite bureaucratic to get signed up. It can be quite expensive. Um, there are certain, you know, rules you have to um, have to meet. For instance, I talked to a guy just yesterday who, whose son was in jail, and um, under treatment and uh, approaching release, and wanted to get a place in a treatment center, a residential one, when he got out but he couldn't apply until he was actually released and when he was released there was paperwork there were delays and so on and so it was a ter- another terrible story he came he was living at home with his father and they had a beautiful christmas you know he was home for christmas the family came he, he played with his nephews and at some point, you know, he called a buddy and the buddy gave him some drugs and boom, he was, he was using again, mm-hmm. And just a week or so later he, he died so and he was, <clears throat> he had been waiting that the father's terribly angry because he thought, first of all, um, you know, why, why, why couldn't we get him straight into treatment from prison right. It's a very dangerous period when people are released from jail. Uh, so many people have been users in the past, and they come out. They haven't been using because they've been in jail, right. and you know they party. You know after they get out, and and that's it. Often very sudden. So,
1: and if someone's not been using for a while and and start to use, I guess this is especially dangerous then too because they've no tolerance really for it.
2: Yeah, their tolerance is, has been has been lowered. So. And the drugs may have become, you know, different and more dangerous since they've been inside. Um, so, you know, they often use something that's usually fentanyl.
1: You really talk about Oshawa a lot and um, how tough opioid overdoses has been on that community and the how the community of addicted people and homeless people had attempted to memorialize some of their friends that they have lost because oftentimes or sometimes the family might swoop in, the body goes somewhere else and there's really no place for them to remember. And I, mm-hmm. I just wanna read a little a bit uh, for our listeners. I wanna read a little bit from one of your your stories that you wrote a, a couple of weeks ago about this particular topic. And it's, um, as the months passed and the deaths mounted, the memorial on John Street West grew. Visiting mourners festooned it with plastic angels, stuffed toys, and pinwheels that spun in the breeze. Someone added a string of twinkly dollar store lights with a donation cup nearby to gather loose change for fresh batteries. A young woman left a series of letters to her ex-boyfriend, Another drew a sketch of her friend, slipping it into a clear plastic folder to protect it from the rain. The names of some of the most familiar figures on the city streets could be found there. But one day a complaint came into the city service line. Officials investigated. They found that the memorial violated Oshawa's road fouling bylaw, which states that the roads and their edges must be kept clear of debris, waste, refuse, and litter. The city's director of operations said that when the department gets a complaint about something like that, it is bound to act. And so one day in April, the city crew came down to John Street. They had a front end loader and a truck. They scooped everything up. Memorial, rocks, lucky pennies, crosses, poems, photos, put it in the truck and carried it off to the dump. Later that day, forestry workers came round to finish the job. They cut down a couple of small trees where visitors had once hung a paper lantern and a bird feeder. They put limbs through a roaring chipper and left. All that remained was wood chips and some tracks in the mud. The John Street Memorial was gone that was such a sad piece to read and because to me it whether the intention was there or not just erased the lives of all of those people who had been there with and turned it into a little more than garbage how did that affect you when you heard about that story.
2: Yeah, well I was I was back in Oshawa for other reasons to work on another story and um I heard about this and I you know I just couldn't believe it. I was just uh-huh. I was just so shocked. Um and uh because I had passed by that memorial many times on mm-hmm. visiting Oshawa and mm-hmm. it was so harmless. Like it was it was not in the city center or in a park or anything. It was, you know, a couple blocks, long blocks from, from, from the main park on this kind of boulevard, like grassy boulevard, be, be, beside the street, which is very little traffic on the street or pedestrians. Uh, there was a parking lot across. There wasn't even many, you know, residences nearby. And it wasn't as if there was some kind of congregation of noisy, awful people. Right. Uh, standing there people would come by to you know pay their respects light a candle and so on but it was just so harmless and it was just such frankly thick-headed bureaucratic you know we have a rule we're going to follow it i taught this guy i talked to that um who was in charge of the decision the operations manager is kind of a uh just a, just an ordinary guy. Um, and he, he talked to me quite openly about it. He didn't seem (laughs) at all kind of ashamed about it. Right. Regretful that it made such a fuss, I think, but he said, look, we, we have rules. We came, we took a look at it, didn't meet the rules. I sort of thought, well, didn't, did you think of telling anybody that you're going to do this? And no, like who would I, who would I tell? These are transients. He basically told me and, um, and you know, did you think of saving any of these mementos? You know, putting them in a storage or something, and, mm-hmm. and people, if they wanted to recover them, no, went straight to the dump. So wow. kind of typical of of how this story and these people are ignored, overlooked, you know, disdained. Really, yeah, um, you know, they're just homeless people. Put a bunch of rocks. You know, who cares? Right. So yeah, I. I I almost literally could not, I I was just gobsmacked by
1: that,
2: by that act. Uh, And the people there too, of course, were so angry and upset um, because they'd left these mementos to people they loved.
1: Are there slivers of hope in here? Um, (laughs) I
2: I have to admit, because it's a pretty dark picture. I mean, when I first started looking at this a couple of years ago, Things were actually beginning to get a little better. The number, I think it was in 2019, the numbers had dipped in British Columbia, which is the you know center of it, where it all started, kind of thing. And uh, safe supply or safe injection sites were opening, and so on. And it, it looked as if we might be on the downslope of the crisis. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is just, I mean, you quoted some of the numbers. They're they're just shocking. Yeah, shocking. Okay. I mean, it's 17 people a day died last year from, from overdose. So, and you know, there's no vaccine for drug addiction, no, right? that's right. This, the other crisis is, you know, let's hope knock on wood is uh, is easing, but this one is hard to know. I mean, will the resumption of trade, for instance, open up the mm-hmm. supply chains and, and ease that problem? Yeah, and so on. or you know, to be really pessimistic about it, um, you know, maybe we're at a new, this is just a new level um, that we're at. Uh, it's it's a complex problem. Mm-hmm. There, even things like safe injection sites, they only reach a small proportion of yeah. people who go to those places. Um, safe supply and decriminalization, well, those are big, big controversial political questions, even the truth which um legalized cannabis uh has said several times we're not going there with with harder drugs there are there are cases like those doctors they wrote about in Timmins who have made a real difference and and communities are bringing in more modern um, uh better better systems for for dealing with people, so that's good,
1: yeah. Um, I have to ask you one question before I let you go, and is that, and it, it, it's, uh, are you planning to do a book uh, on this topic? Do you think, um, you know, in particular, these personal stories and being able to shed a light on the, on the personal angle of the implications of the, this um, um, pandemic, second pandemic? Are you thinking
2: about that at all? Yeah, I have been thinking about it. Um, unfortunately, more thinking than doing. <laughs> um, you
1: know, Ellis has
2: that book proposal in his back pocket, and I'm rather slow at. You know, I'm sort of looking at what's coming the next week and how I have to, right. you know, what I'm writing for the papers. So, so I will. Um, I hope. I hope to do something like that. I, I. The question is sort of how to focus it and make it compelling i don't want to sort of write another um oh my the opioids crisis look how bad it is because i don't think that's very fresh we already know it's um a terrible thing
1: so i'm just looking for a way into it the journalist is marcus g the topic is the opioid crisis canada's other pandemic and i encourage listeners to go to theglobalmail.com and and read all of marcus's work on the subject And thanks for being with us today, Marcus. I so really appreciate it.
2: It was my great pleasure. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Talking Up. The program was produced by Terry Carter with original music by the Fortan Electrosonic Laboratory. Be sure to join us again next week for another inspiring edition. And if you're interested in keeping up to date until then, visit us at thecharityreport.com.